Hey everyone, just wanted to do a quick plug before the episode starts. Uh, this week I was a guest on the Patch In podcast, which is hosted by SoundNotion.tv. We talked about my music, specifically uh, related to electronic music, and also you know some of the different technology, and also just we kind of geeked about podcasts for a while. So uh, after you listen to this one, of course, go over to SoundNotion.tv and find the Patch In podcast. They are also on iTunes, so you can find them there as well. And while you're on iTunes, just go ahead and give us a rating. Give us a review. Tell us what you think about this podcast, the Lexical Tones podcast. And now, on with the show. You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Eclectic. Personal. Collaborative. Jessica Rudman is a Connecticut-based composer whose music unifies extended techniques with clear melodic development and narrative structures to create a unique emotional expression. She is currently the chair of the Creative Studies Department at the Hart School Community Division, where she teaches composition and theory. Jessica is also an active music theorist and an arts advocate who runs the student workshop for the Women Composers Festival of Hartford. (laughs) Okay, well, thanks for doing this, Jessica. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. Uh, I noticed that the last couple of your episodes are all people that I went to school with. <laughs> oh, really? That's funny. <laughs> yeah, uh, Inez and uh, Angelica and I were all at CUNY together. Oh man, that's cool. Well, yeah. <laughs> I sh- we should have we should have scheduled this earlier. We could have had all three of you in a row. That'd be awesome. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they were uh, they were really fun to talk to, really really fun. I mean, Angelica and I got into Bjork a, a lot that didn't even make the show, um, so that was that was quite fun. And mm-hmm. I and I've been listening to her band uh, Balloon like mm-hmm. nonstop since then, so it's pretty cool. And uh, Inez, oh, she was so she was so fun to talk to. Like, yeah. Yeah, I've presented uh, both of them to my composition seminar and just because like, you know, their music would come up in my Twitter feed or or on my SoundCloud feed and I was like, okay, check this out. Wow, this is great. Yeah. Other people need to know about this. <laughs> so, anyway, getting to your music, let's start with your piece Isult Speaks. Um, so what what is this song about? Or this song cycle, rather. So, um, Assault Speaks is a a collaboration that I did with a poet who's based in Connecticut named Elizabeth Hamilton. And these poems um, actually were part of her, um, like, master's thesis poetry collection. Um, And they are all sort of a modern take on the Tristan and Assault myth. Um, from Assault's point of view, and they sort of go beyond painting Assault as sort of, I mean, she's fairly a flat character in the myth, um, where she's sort of more an accessory to Tristan. Um, And these poems, Beth really gets into sort of the complex emotions that um, Assault might have had. And so that's sort of what the whole collection um, is focused on. Right. And 
I mean, who, how, how did you find Elizabeth Hamilton? How did you find her work? So we were actually at um, a residency together at the Atlantic Center for the Arts, um, I think in 2014. And um, as part of that residency, each um, participant did sort of an introduction to their work. And she read uh, a couple of these poems and I just instantly fell in love with them. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I spent like the next week and a half trying to get up the nerve to ask her if I could set them to music. <laughs> <laughs> it's like asking someone out on a date. Like you have to like, oh, can I, can I, 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 I really like your poetry. Can I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that nervousness. That's funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that, I mean, you said that the main character is usually cast, I mean, in the other versions, in, in the myth and then the other versions that might have come out of that story um, as kind of a one-dimensional accessory to Tristan. And, you know, this just got me thinking about how many how many films and stories there are that out there that only cast a woman as the love interest. Yeah, that's, um, that's a big issue. And it's actually... Um something that I've sort of been focusing on in some of my recent pieces is having female protagonists who are complex and have a lot of different layers and um, are really just the, the focus. Right. And I, you know, my wife and I like to play this game um, that, uh, well, it, it originated from the podcast Doug Loves Movies, which is hosted by Doug Benson. It's one of my favorites just to listen to um, because it's all about movie trivia. But there's this game that they play where you basically name a actor or actress and then try to think of all the movies they've ever done. And you go back and forth and whoever can't name one more is, you know, loses. <laughs> so um, the, the goal is to stay in as long as possible. But we've noticed that it's way easier to play with a man than it is a woman. <laughs> like you think about um, you think about someone like Matt Damon or something, you can just go on and on and on and on. But then you think about maybe someone of similar stature, maybe Kate Blanchett or someone like you can go for a little bit, but it just doesn't seem like there are as many there are as many roles out there for for women. And I mean, there, you know, it, it actually seems like there aren't as many good roles in Hollywood unless you're a straight white man. And as we've recently seen, <laughs> there, there aren't any good roles that don't come with sexual harassment or assault <laughs> as part of the contract. So I, I, I just thought that, you know, that this, um, th- this telling of this story, like recasting, um, result as, as a more complex character is important and it's something that we're not really that we're only just starting to see well i mean there are you know there's sort of a a tradition of books and other um you know other art forms that do this sort of thing i mean wicked is a very big example right um but uh uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley's um, book, The Mists of Avalon, takes the Arthurian legends and focuses on the female characters. Um, you know, so it, this is not coming out of nowhere, but it's still an important thing to do. Mm-hmm. And 
since a lot of our culture is dominated by male authors, some of whom can write female characters well and some of whom can't do as well <laughs> or just don't even <laughs> <Struggle>. try. <laughs> um, I think that highlighting female authors and strong female characters is an important thing for us to to do. So how does Hamilton's poetry kind of kind of recast her? Like what are what are some examples of taking her from that one dimensional character and, and giving her more depth? Well, she has um, sort of a very ambivalent uh, feeling towards Tristan, um, where sometimes, you know, she's focused on the, the passion and the intensity that she feels for him from the love potion that has sort of forced her into being in love with him. Um, and then at other times, she, you know, is very bitter about this situation that she's been forced into. And she talks about how, um, you know, she wishes that when they were in the boat, she had jumped out and swam to shore and left him to drown. <laughs> um, that's not in the that's not in the excerpt that we're going to listen to, but it's uh, it's it's in the third song. If anyone wants uh-huh. to check it out. Um <laughs> You know, and then she's also got sort of complex uh, feelings about her relationship with King Mark, who is her husband, and sort of the relationship that uh, that she's forced into with him because she was, you know, given away in an arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of issues about um, gender roles and sort of the expectations and the restrictions that she faces as a woman that Tristan is not subject to as a man. Right. Yeah. Uh, which that shows up a little more in the excerpt that we are listening to. So musically, are you responding to this text in an intuitive way or are there, are there things going in the background that we, we might not be aware of? Uh, both. Um, the, Song Cycle um, uses a lot of um, different leitmotifs mm-hmm. um, related to the context, uh, the content of the poem, uh, the poems. And so when I first started the project, I worked with Elizabeth to sort of figure out which poems to set, because this is, again, part of a larger collection um, that she's still, or at least at the time, was still working on. And so we sort of picked which which poems to set and we talked about the order. And then I went through and I made a lot of really, really detailed notes about sort of different important themes and ideas that come back in multiple poems, different words that come back in multiple poems, different sort of subtext to them and how I might bring that out musically. And then I sort of started sketching the different um, leitmotifs for some of these different uh, aspects of the song cycle and so the the piece as a whole has a lot of references between songs um, a lot of sort of similar um, pitch materials and other things that come back and are woven together and combined in different ways to sort of um, reflect the meaning of uh, Elizabeth's words. So we're going to listen to the sixth and the seventh song from this cycle. So what 
are are there those kind of connections even between these two songs or something that shows up in one of these songs that was introduced earlier that we that we might not that we might not get the sort of biggest connection between uh song 6 and um a- another movement of the piece actually is um the musical uh, the instrumental interludes that are coming in between the different phrases mm-hmm. um, that uh, it sort of starts out with, you know, a very brief solo and then gradually builds into this sort of contrapuntal um, passage that takes over at the climax of song six. That uh, music actually comes back pretty much verbatim and sort of works into um, sort of a different type of climax uh, as the um, twelfth movement, which is an instrumental uh, only movement um, before the final song of the cycle, mm-hmm. um, and it uh, in song six, she's sort of talking about how Tristan has built another life and how um, she doesn't even have to raise her eyes to knock it down. So it's sort of this, you know, house of cards that that Tristan has built of his life. And so this um, this contrapuntal passage that gradually is built up in song six represents that life that Tristan has built for himself, um, which is sort of the source of, of a lot of her scorn is this life that she is not part of. It's, it's his life with his wife who happens also to be named assault <laughs> um well that's convenient yeah i know <laughs> and, and not at all confusing not at all confusing <laughs> um yeah his his wife is called assault of the white hands uh which is in song seven it it starts off talking about with your wife might be the one with the white hands um so that's a a reference to to his wife uh, and they have sort of this, um, well, I think there's sort of a, a, a deeper implication going on since they both have the same name. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but, uh, and they're sort of, sort of mirrors to each other in a way, I think. Right. Um, and then song, song seven, what is, uh, what is that one kind of describing? So song seven, well... To be blunt, is a giant female orgasm. There it is. All right. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's very, very sensual. Um, you know, it's it's talking about you know calling Tristan back to the forest where he wades waist deep in the tinder of her body. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know she starts talking winged lit. The proof pours from the floor of my body. It's it's just overt. Very it's it's very sexual and it it just um to me it's it's sort of this outpouring of her intense passion for him and the the song kind of culminates, you know, in in trying to call him back to her. Um and then and then the singer at the very end whispers make ash cuz she just you know, she wants to be consumed by their their passionate relationship right i mean 
sexuality is not something that composers often get to grapple with in a piece of music. I mean, of course, if you're writing pop music, it's like the entire show is, right. is going to be <laughs> is going to be sexuality in some way or another. But but it's not something like I I remember um, working on a piece uh, where I did have some like a movement that was the the image for it was basically like it's two in the morning in uh like in the middle of summer in like new orleans or something it's raining that like that there's a traffic light right outside the window that's blinking red and you've just got done having sex and the the movement is entirely about that feeling you know mm. and it and it, it's like and I remember like taking this to at, at that point, you know, I was still a student, so I was in lessons and everything. And I remember taking it to my uh, my teacher at that point and just kind of, you know, kind of sheepish, sheepishly describing this. But it was like, that's real. You know, this is this is part of human <laughs> human existence. Yeah. So why should it not be part of art as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I had a lesson with a composer at a music festival probably about 10 years ago now. And I, I think I had shown him an instrumental piece and he, and I don't remember the context of why he said this. Um, but I remember him, you know, talking about how he wanted me to write a sexy piece. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I, I was like, at the time I was like, I don't like, I don't even understand like how I'm going to, you know, you know, my flute solo that I'm working on, whatever, and I'm going to make it a sexy piece. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but I, I think this is finally a sexy piece. Good. <laughs> so uh, who are the performers that we're going to hear on this recording? So the performers on this recording are um, mezzo-soprano Charity Clark and then the Hartford Independent Chamber Orchestra. Um, and they are the ones that uh, commissioned the piece. Um, and I worked very closely with Charity when I was um, writing it. Great. So this is Isolt Speaks, movement six and seven.
So let's move on to your piece, A Curious Incident with the Queen. Okay. And this uh, this text is by Edith Nesbitt. Who, who is Edith Nesbitt? So Edith Nesbitt is a um, British author who is alive um, in like the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and she wrote a lot of children's uh, books that were sort of um, very fantastical in nature. Mm-hmm. And this particular piece, you've set it for chorus and um, some just a few instruments, right? It's mm-hmm. trumpet, trumpet and cello and, and clarinet and piano. So this this piece kind of seems almost like an oratorio. Or at least something mm-hmm. that has that does have a definite narrative. So what's the what's the story of this piece? Yeah, it definitely does have a narrative. Um, it it's based on a scene from um, Nesbitt's uh, book, The Story of the Amulet. Um, and the story of the amulet was written in 1906, and it's actually the third book. Um, in a series it's the last last book of a trilogy um and in that trilogy there's four siblings who um they sort of go on these um magical adventures um around the world and across time um and they're looking for um this two-part amulet that will give them their greatest desire and uh so they're on a quest to 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 do that because they want their parents to come back home to them that's their desire Mm -hmm. um and so this amulet can help people travel through time and they are looking for the the other half of the amulet they meet up with this creature called the samiad who is um sort of this wish granting (laughs) you know magical being right and um as part of their adventures, they go to ancient Babylon and in Babylon, they meet the queen of Babylon. And that is the queen of the title. And one of the children lets it slip that the Samiad grants wishes. 
And so the queen takes advantage of that and wishes that she could see um, the place where the children are from. So the queen of ancient Babylon gets transported to London around 1900 and goes on this tour with um, these four kids. So that's sort of where the composition starts. Mm -hmm. And in the piece, the... um, Children are taking the queen around the city and, you know, she's not super impressed. And she sees um, all of the poor people in the city and she mistakes them for slaves. And so she she starts questioning the children about why the slaves are being taken uh, such poor care of. And the, the children don't don't really understand and and tries to explain that they're not slaves um and the the queen is like no look i know what slaves look like these people are being treated like slaves um and and are not being cared for at all and so then the children try to explain that they're not slaves because they have a vote mm. but the children don't mm. really understand how the vote helps the people or what the vote is and the queen sort of eventually comes to the conclusion that the the vote is just sort of a a meaningless um placation because it's not helping the people at all Hmm. and so she makes um she uses one of her wishes with the samiad to uh give all of the people their favorite food and drink because, you know, because to her, that's, you know, something she can do that will immediately improve their situation. Yeah. Um, and then the children all are like, oh, that's such a great wish. And that's where the scene ends um, in the composition. So what about that particular part of the story? Why, why did you select that? I mean, it, se- it seems like there's a lot there. Yeah. So... I was commissioned to write this piece by the Astoria Choir um, in 2016, and they were doing a fantasy-themed concert. So I was looking for some kind of text to use, um, and I I had actually had sort of a different idea that I was originally exploring, um, and so I was looking for texts from, um, specifically I wanted female authors, um, for this other idea I had for the piece. Um, but I was having trouble finding passages um, that fit that idea. And then, um, well, we had the American presidential election. And like a lot of people, I sort of was shell-shocked yeah. uh, by that. That's. Uh, it seems like, you know, how everyone... Uh, of of uh, earlier generations, everyone knew where they were when JFK was assassinated, or knew where they were when the Challenger exploded. The, I, for our generation, we have two of them already. It's where were you at nine eleven, mm-hmm. and how did you feel when in the twenty sixteen presidential election? At least right now, that's what it right. feels like. Maybe in the future, that kind of that feeling of just. Uh, complete shock will go away and i hope it goes away because it's a you know just a an outlier 
of the whole thing. I hope it doesn't go away because that's the yeah. new normal. Oh my right. god. <laughs> That would be horrifying. <laughs> yes, it would. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So while I was sort of trying to work through um, my my feelings a, a, about the election, this scene kind of kept coming back to me um, because it, it, I mean, for one thing, there was the issue of the vote and what what does a vote mean if it doesn't help people if it doesn't improve situations for people who who need help it it also sort of reminded me of um you know the the disparity um between different uh levels of our economy uh right now and you know the the difference between the 1% and everyone else right um and and between um, sort of the middle middle class, whatever that means right now, um, and and people who you know have have far less and who don't have the the means and the opportunities that a lot of us take for granted. I mean, I think it's interesting that you know economic oppression is equated with slavery in this um in this text and that that's definitely how you interpreted it so and when you think on that not much has changed in the world i mean we think we've come so far but really it's just oh this is the new tool to keep people enslaved in one way or another you yeah know? And, that, and that's a powerful statement and and you know this piece and and the previous piece they they both have a somewhat political slant or at least or at least a message that mm-hmm. resonates that resonates in the present and you talked about the in, in the notes for your piece you kind of talked about the political powerlessness after the election mm-hmm. um, that you felt you know has has working these feelings into your art made you feel more powerful um I don't think it has necessarily made me feel more powerful um, because it, in a certain sense, the people who recognize the message of these pieces, most of them, I think, already were on board with those messages. You're literally and, preaching to the choir? Yes. Um, and And people who are not... I'm not sure that they are awakened to it from these pieces. Um, I, I honestly, when the piece was performed, I, someone came up to me and and made a comment about how the message fit right in with what Donald Trump was doing to make America great. Wait, what? Like, yeah. <laughs> you you mean they interpreted it as like? Oh, th- th- you're exactly right, and he's gonna fix it. That's how they interpreted it. Yes, I think. Oh dear God! I, I, to be honest, I was so shocked that I just sort of nodded politely and walked away as quickly yeah. as I could because I just didn't. I was so surprised because I, I thought that it was pretty blatant. <laughs> yeah. Um, what I was going for in the piece. Uh, 
you know, so I, I'm not sure that, that it's necessarily giving, making me feel more like I have a way to influence, uh, you know, the, the way things are going in, in the world, but it certainly felt very cathartic to me. Right. Um, to kind of work through those those ideas and those feelings. Yeah, to work through those ideas and those feelings. And, you know, if if it does happen to make somebody reconsider their viewpoints, then that's amazing. Um, but I'm I'm not sure if it does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was um just just recently I was presenting uh another piece of music in my uh to my composition seminar and i had a kind of curious response from a few students in the seminar that that politics should kind of stay out of music and mm-hmm. i think it's i think it's similar when athletes or, or or you know actors or someone they take a stand for something and they get told to just keep it to themselves and just do their job as if somehow they are not of this world and are just like uh abstract shapes and colors meant for our entertainment. And I think it's interesting how much power that the audience has kind of grabbed in recent years from, from anyone in, in kind of like you are presenting your work to an audience, whether it, whether it be for entertainment or for art or for, or for whatever, you know, it's just, it's just interesting how much the audience has taken hold of or, or how how much power they have in in the you know in the public discourse the, mm-hmm. where where it's it's possible to just say oh just just do your job that that you know we don't care about that just just da- like basically dance puppet Are you, you right <laughs> like so do you think about those possible possible reactions when working with subject matter that kind of isn't just artistically neutral uh yeah. I mean, I definitely feel more vulnerable when I'm writing pieces that have a strong message. Um, like, um, it's not one of the pieces that we're going to listen to because I, I've talked about it a lot in other places. Um, mm-hmm. But I have, you know, a piece called Trigger, which is a, a short chamber opera for one singer about, uh, you know, domestic abuse. And, um, and that's a very difficult subject matter and, uh, it's difficult for people to perform. It was difficult for me to write. It's difficult for people to see or hear the piece in the Uh audience. Um, so, you know, it was scary, um, writing that and then, uh, writing this, uh, curious incident with the queen, um, you know, you never know if that's going to sort of change people's uh, view of you as an artist or as a human being. Um, I, I've i been fortunate that I haven't had any, um, any sort of backlash that I know of. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, from these, these pieces. Um, but um yeah it's definitely something that uh that gives an added layer of um 
concern rather than when I'm just writing a a piece that has maybe some kind of a, a personal emotional meaning or or narrative, but that doesn't have this sort of connection to a really charged topic. Yeah, yeah. So who are we going to hear in this uh, in this performance? So this is the the premiere by the um, Astoria Choir, uh, which is directed by Adam Eggleston. So this is A Curious Incident with the Queen.
Before we talk about the last piece, I wanted to kind of talk to you about the work you do with the Women Composers Festival of Hartford. So you run that student workshop that is involved in that festival. What kinds of things do you do with the students? So um, the student workshop is something that we've done for a few years now, although this year we're sort of totally revamping it, which I'm actually really excited about. Um, In previous years, the way that the workshop um, happened was that um, students or emerging composers would submit a piece um, for consideration by our ensemble in residence, and they could submit it either for the concert or for the workshop or both. Um, And then we would choose um, usually three or so pieces by students, um, you know, junior high, high school, college, Mm -hmm. grad school, you know, any, any age students. Um, And that piece would be read and recorded and we would have uh, sort of a 90 minute session where the ensemble would play through the piece and talk about it and give the student feedback and the students could try out different things um, uh, with the ensemble. um, And we would sort of talk about, use those student pieces to talk about writing for that ensemble. Right. Uh, This year, what we're doing is instead of having students apply with existing pieces, we created um, an application form where students could express an interest in writing a new piece. Okay. And so we have um, we have our participants selected, and uh, they each will be writing a new short piece for string quartet because we're working with Quattro Puntos as our ensemble in residence this year. And so the students are going to come uh, meet with me in December for sort of a orientation session where they'll get to meet each other, and um, we'll talk about. Uh, composing and writing for string quartet and how to sort of um, take, you know, whatever ideas they might have from sort of the conception stage to the fully finished, you know, give score and parts to the ensemble stage. Um, And then during the festival, we will still have that reading session, but the students will sort of get the the element of being able to meet each other and interact. And then I'm going to mentor them um, uh, using uh, email and online conferencing and things like that uh, as they're writing. So it's a much more um, hands-on uh, experience now rather than just show up and have your piece read and, and then right. that's it. Right, yeah. That's great. I mean, what uh, what kinds of ideas are, are I guess, um, you know, if you're working with uh, young students, have you have you had that moment where with any of them where the kind of the light bulb turns on? Because I've talked to a lot of composers who are women and they and they all well, most have a similar story that, you know, I coming up as a musician, I just. I didn't even know that composition was even available to me. You know, I didn't think that women did that because I didn't have any representation in the music I was learning. So have has that moment kind of occurred with any of the students? I mean, I guess if they're coming in as a composer already, then probably not. But still. yeah, so 
I mean, the experience that you describe is um, exactly the experience that I had growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I tried to write music periodically as I was growing up, but I I didn't, I mean, I didn't know of women composers, but I also didn't really have an awareness that composition was sort of a, a possible career path that people did today in general. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um. And it really is only something that I sort of got exposed to a little bit in high school because we did have a composer who our band commissioned, um, a male composer, but still good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, so I started to be aware that, oh, you know, that band piece that we play in school, there's actually someone, you know, alive who writes those. Yeah. Um, And, uh, you know, it's not all dead people from 100 or 200 or something years ago. And uh, and and then it was really more in college that I started to see that there were other women composers. Um, so it's it's something that I feel very strongly about. So I I actually work a lot with students. Um, my primary academic job right now is in the Hart School Community Division, uh-huh. and I teach composition and theory. Um, to pre-college students and to adult students. And um, I think that by being there as sort of a teacher and as a active uh, female composer, that my students at least sort of, they they have an example right there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I I try to do pr- projects and collaborations with other schools and with other groups so that those students also can see a living composer and and a woman composer Uh um right now i'm doing a residency with a school district um probably about an hour away from me in connecticut um where i'm writing a piece for the different levels of band in that school district to play on their you know, district concert in April. Uh And then I'm going into the classes for these different ages of students and I'm doing some short composition workshops with them. And I think that if it's sort of set up early on as composition is part of your music education and it's something that you can do for fun or to express yourself or to better understand music and that everyone can do it, then hopefully less people are going to have that experience that you uh, mentioned. Yeah. Well, and I also think that, you know, this, this is such an important experience for young women and young girls to have, to see an example that they can, that they can follow. But I also think it's a really important experience for young men to have as well. You know, we talk so much about, um, uh, like, and the, the, this, I might cut this out. This is just something I wanted to talk about. Sure, right sure. Now, but, <laughs> um, but it's, uh, like I, I have two daughters and I'm constantly thinking about how, you know, their, their view of the world is going to be as they're, you know, as they're growing up and we're, you know, in talk in the discourse about, you know, like rape and sexual assault and all that stuff, it's always, you know, there, there's this big push right now to like 
you know, people who have young boys, oh my God, you're not doing your job, you know, like as a parent. Mm -hmm. So like as I, I think it's also really important that young men see that, oh yeah, women are composers, you know, that I, I, I don't know. I just think that's, that. Yeah, I, I a, agree. Yeah. That's a, that's a huge <laughs> educational benefit of the, the types of stuff you're doing. Um, that you're not only making it more possible for young women to get into composition. You're also broadening the scope of, uh, broadening the scope of young musicians who are male. Mm-hmm. And that's hopefully that, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't have a nice quippy ending to this statement, but, um, but it, it just seems like that's, that's something that you, you're two things are two, two positives come out of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the benefit is, um, for all students. It's not just for the female students. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let's talk about your last piece. And this is you as you. <laughs> Sorry. I screwed up, screwed <laughs> so up the a cadence little, there. <laughs> mouthful. <laughs> yeah. Let's, <laughs> it's, it's a tough one. Um, you as you were before you existed. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's for violin and cello. Um, and ex- it's actually the oldest of the three pieces that, I'm sharing and this, with you. This was inspired by a poem by Pablo Neruda. And I mean, as we've seen in the three pieces, text is kind of a big deal for you. Yeah. Um, although, to be honest, in this case, inspired by is a little bit of a loose uh, <laughs> loose way of putting it because the music mostly came first. It was a nice first. title. It was a nice title and it fits sort of the feeling of the music. Um, but yeah, text is, is very important to me. Um, I mean, I, I'm an avid reader and I, uh, grew up sort of writing my own poems and stories and things. And there was actually a long time, you know, when I was growing up that I thought I was going to be a writer (laughs) as an adult. Um, okay. So, uh, so text is something that I I really love and that I relate very strongly to. Um, so a lot of my pieces have some kind of a connection to a text, even if they are not um, vocal pieces or pieces where the text is actually heard. Mm-hmm. The uh, the emotional climax you talked about in your notes for this piece is is actually very tender, mm-hmm. so, and I I love a good piece that like slowly dies away over minutes and that it is not easy to write Mm -hmm. you know you have to you have to go through a lot of planning to make sure you aren't just stepping down but rather gliding down yeah I did do a lot of planning when I wrote this piece um I sort of started out with um thinking about what the violin and the cello could do in, in terms of colors and also in terms of pitches and you know how do they overlap and then what's distinct about them um and that sort of led me to the the opening material where they're both sort of exploring um you know this single pitch with different colors and then branching out into microtones and then finally separating out into counterpoint Mm -hmm. um 
and it also led me to um the the more chorale like material that comes at that at that climax that you're talking about right and then it was sort of um figuring out sort of how do i transform that opening material into that that climax material Mm -hmm. who are we going to hear on this recording uh let me double check which recording i sent you i'm pretty sure i sent you the nomos group um so they are an ensemble uh based in spain and they um played the piece a couple summers ago um at the valencia uh international performance academy it just had uh, the file just had revised on the end of it. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. it would be the Nomos group. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. So this is I'm going to try not to screw the title up this time. You as you were before you existed. <laughs>
Now uh, we've come to the last question, which is the one that I ask all the composers who are on the podcast, and that is, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Um, well, I, I did music growing up, um, and, I, and I did some composing, but I never really sort of was aware of it as, uh, as kind of a career, and... When I went to college, I was planning to major in astrophysics. Whoa! All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a change. That's a big change. Uh, it did not last very long. Um, I, you know, I took the first semester classes and decided that while it was something I was very much interested in, it was not um, what I wanted to do every day for the rest of my life. Yeah. And um, and I had been taking some music classes as electives, and so I decided that I would I would switch and major in music, and that's where I sort of realized that composition was something that I could uh, pursue, um, you know, more long term, and you know, and really it was only when I got to grad school that I sorted started to get an inkling of what a career in composition might actually look like. Um, and, you know, and it's something that I'm, uh, continuously revising what my sure. idea <laughs> of a, com a composition career looks like. Um, so that's sort of how I, uh, got into music as sort of my chosen profession. <laughs> you know, just, just start on the astrophysics path You're and right. get there. <laughs> I, well, you know, I have met a couple other people who had that same switch. So really, wow. yeah, I'm not the only one. Um, so I, I think there's something about the, um, well, I know for instance, like, uh, Michael pounds who teaches at ball state. Um, I can't remember what he majored in, but it was, it was some, I believe it was engineering, um, mm -hmm. of some kind, but he actually worked for NASA for oh, a wow. while. Yeah. And then, and then just decided, Oh, I'm going to be a composer now. Like, I, I mean, I love that. I love that switch. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that maybe it's something about um, the, the mental process involved between mm -hmm. music and science. Yeah. And I mean, science has always been something that I've really been into, but I know, like, I would be a horrible scientist. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it. I, I like to I like to learn about it. I like it to be part of my life. But at the same time. It's not something that I could that I could do seriously. Yeah. You know. But it's it's still really cool. So mm -hmm. <laughs> So before we go, um, can you tell everyone where they can find you online and how to connect with you? Yeah. So I'm I'm quite easy to find online and connect with. Uh, my website is jessicarudman.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Jessica Composer. Um, I think that that's also the uh handle for my facebook artist page and for my instagram so good night it's important to have that branding very early yeah on. right right yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you're and i think you're pretty active on twitter right i i am pretty active on twitter yeah, yeah there's so there's so many composers i talk to who do, who aren't on twitter at all and i'm you know it's like oh it's it's such a like i i don't know a lot of people think twitter is lame i like it um, I, yeah, I was I was pretty resistant when it first um, 
first came out, so I wasn't like one of the early adopters or anything. Right. Um, yeah. But uh, I I finally was convinced by some other uh, musicians that it was worthwhile. And I I have definitely found it to be a really great way to connect with other composers and performers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, definitely. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Jessica. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be a guest on your podcast. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about Adjective New Music or Lexical Tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. Thank you.